you do have your Bible, go ahead and open to the first letter of Peter. You'll find it toward the very end of your Bible. If you've hit Revelation, you've gone a little bit too far, but it's right past Hebrews and the book of James, and then you'll land on 1 Peter. And in our second session together, so please don't leave. Please don't leave because it's very, very important when we read God's word that we understand the tone of the author, that we understand the context of which the author is writing and who he is writing to. It is applicable to you and I today in the 21st century, but we've really got to understand the underlying themes of the author. And in the second session, I really want to show you first Peter. I want to to tell you where Peter was when he wrote this, why he wrote it, and how uh, it is able to really transform our mind and our hearts today as we sit here. But before we go there, and before we hit into the verse 18, because I'm going to back up all the way to verse 1, I want to set you up for this word redeemed, redemption, and what it really means. Because I'll be honest with you, I was 19 when I got this tattoo. And I didn't know, I didn't have a clue what it meant. I knew that it meant in the back of my head after growing up in church all my life, I, I knew that it was a Christian word, that it was a word used in the Bible, and that it was a, a symbol of, of God really coming after us and Jesus paying the price for what I owed. I had that amount of knowledge. But what I didn't really understand is the both and aspect of this word. That it is, and these are the things, the principles of Christianity that we get really messed up on and we stop and we freeze and we turn away are the both and things because they're tricky. It's a part of us that is, but it's also a part of us that is becoming. So to be redeemed is to be sealed In redemption, we are finally, fully, finished, redeemed. But also, we live on planet Earth with the remnants of sin in our body and in the midst of a bunch of sinners. So we are feeling pain and suffering and tragedy and doubt and fear and anxiety. We're fighting those little remnants of our own sin that we were born with every single day. And so there is a both-end element to redemption. There is the finality of it that nothing you can do will remove you from it. From it, Nothing you have done will veto you from the promise. Your worthiness, your value, and your identity, and your eternal home has never been in question. So in the worst pain, in the worst parts of doubt and fear where you are crying out the most obscene things to God, your, his love for you has never been off the table, on the table. It just is who you are. But because of pain and suffering and things like cancer diagnosis, we doubt those things. Things come into our life that starts to prick and trigger these places within our heart that we haven't seen yet. All through our life, we are a becoming We never stop moving. We're going deeper in faith. There's no arrival. There's no arrival on planet Earth because this is not our home. And so it was so interesting to me as I'm I'm sitting here having these fears about actually committing to come to Hawaii and speak. 
that, that I'm speaking and teaching and feeling pressed to teach about redemption. What, what a parallel. What a parallel because cancer is true of me. Cancer is the disease that was in my body and I can't go back and change that. And I actually still have remnants of it in my body. I have, I, I have cancer cells. They've been activated. That's done. Most likely, this, if, the, if this, my, my disease, my particular type and brand of cancer, most likely will take my life if it returns, if something else doesn't before, whatever. That's what this you know, studies show. But, and so I've got these remnants in me, not only of the disease, but, but of the treatments. I just had a blood test a week ago, and my white blood cells and my platelets are still way below average because I still have, I mean, chemotherapy is like wallpaper to your organs. I mean, it, it stays with you for years and years and years, and so my body still gets tired easier, gets run down when I prefer it not to, and so I still have these remnants that I have to deal with, and one day I can be like I am right now, that you see me. I feel good, I'm believing God, I'm healed, I'm speaking that life over me and that truth over me, but tomorrow. But tomorrow something may trigger something in me that takes me back to that chemotherapy chair when I was bald as I could be, sick as I could be, couldn't get out of my bed for, for months, that capsizes me in fear, that debilitates me and paralyzes me and causes me to question and doubt and go, wait, God, did you really say I'm healed? The same sad lie that Satan's been using since the very beginning. Did God really say? It's the same four words. He's just saying the same thing a million different ways to us. That's it. We've got him figured out, y'all. He's asking you the same thing that he asked Eve. He, he wants you to own it. He knows that he can't himself own that lie for you. And he knows that if you are truly a believer in Jesus Christ, that you are capped and sealed in your heart, I mean, it is just like this divine protective wear around it, this barrier. He cannot penetrate that. And he certainly can't read your thoughts. But he can use everything that you speak out, everything that we speak out in the way of doubt, in the way of self-preservation, in the way of manipulation, everything that we speak out, he can turn back against us. And it's the same question as it is to me, as it is to you, sister. Did God really say? Did God really say you're supposed to stay with this man? That he's it for you? Did God really say that it's okay for you to just compromise your sexuality this one time? It's just going to be this one time. Did God really say that it's okay for you to just stay at home instead of showing up for church? Did God really say, and he'll just use it. Did God really say that you're good enough to do that, that you can do that, that you're valuable enough here, that you really belong, that people really love you? And he just gets in those little bitty fine places that attach to us because he's been studying us for a long time. He knows our attachments. He knows what went really wrong in our home, what went really right in our home. And he knows how we struggle with our parents, with their parents. With the people in our world, he knows where our stuff is. And he gets 
he gets in there. And so in the midst of all of those triggers, in the midst of those lies, in the midst of those moments, when I want to, when I want to start to go, well, wait a minute, is this cancer going to come back? Am I going to die of this? And start to freak out. In the midst of that, what am I to do? I am to remember who I am because of whose I am. And that is what redemption feels like. Redemption is a both and. It means that you are redeemed, but it is also working out in you so that you more often believe this. I'm a trauma counselor by, by trade. That's what I do I, I, as if that's my background, my education. And, and when you're dealing with a, with a brain that's dealt with any kind of trauma, which is most people actually, um, you are looking, you're not looking for them to be fixed. And, and, but how do you know when you're making progress? When, when a person's actually seeing change in their life, when they're not going back to alcoholism or, or drugs or sexual promiscuity or, or whatever it is they've been coping and surviving on, how do you market as a counselor, as a therapist, that they are actually seeing brain changes, which, by the way, takes two years for a trauma? You're, you're not looking for this grand, big, I'm healed, I'm whole, I am all good. A, a good trained professional would look at that and go, oh, hang on there. Because pain's going to come and something else is going to trigger it on down the way. What I, all I am looking, all I am looking for, and the same goes for our Christian life, is just a longer stretch in the amount of time between the dysfunctional behaviors. So if alcoholism is, is if alcohol is where they go, to get drunk and to forget their trauma. I'm looking for, okay, you didn't drink today and you skipped that day. That's good. And then maybe it's a week between those behaviors. And then maybe it's a month between those behaviors. And then maybe there's a years of gap between those behaviors. In those years and months and weeks, there's, the temptation does not cease to exist. But, but something in their brain is changing. There is a part of them that is waking up. And, and, the, and literally, the neurons that have mapped onto alcohol are beginning to map a different way in their brain that there is another behavior that they can choose instead of this. And that behavior over here actually leads to, to healthy relationships, to life. They feel better physically. They feel better mentally. They can show up for work. So as a counselor, I, I, and, and I say this to you, what are we looking for? To know that we are redeemed, to really believe our identity and who we are. We are looking for these maybe small that lead to bigger and bigger lapses of time and movement where we are choosing our, our, our identity. We are choosing to believe that this is true of us. That day, and then another day, and then another day, and another day. And before long, it's called transformation. It's called renewal of the mind. Did you know we use the word heart? Our heart, change our heart a lot. Look at the motives of the heart because that's the, that's the language that our Savior uses. So we, we love that word. It's that inner place in us, that spirit, that soul. But do you know that your heart is actually, it's a small portion of your brain right here. It is in the mind. 
The language of the heart exists in the mind. And so as our mind is renewed and every day we get up and we say to ourselves over and over again, this is who I am for me to get up and go, I, I am healed today. I am healed. My body is healed. My mind is healed. I am loved. I am a daughter of the King. I am his possession. I am his treasure. I want to tell you, do you know what radical things that will do in your life? What radical changes that will make as your brain begins to map and change and your heart and your mind begins to transform and renew onto that you are redeemed. Okay? So I'm setting you up for that. So let me just tell you very quickly what the word redemption means. It is from the Greek and it means to ransom. It means to ransom. So there's two parts really to this ransom that we see played out in the Old and New Testament. And please, please take notes. I I love it when you're looking down at me. Because that means to me, that's communicating that this is important to you. That you want to remember these things. Redemption, Greek, to ransom. The first part of this movement is that the party being paid for is in bondage. So there is a slavery that's going on. There is, a, there is one party who is captive or in bondage to slavery. The second part of this movement is that there's got to be an, a payment for this. The party that's in, in captivity, there's got to be a payment, an exchange for that party to be set free. That's what it means. And so mostly we see this in the Old Testament. Here's what I want you to understand. We see this in the Old Testament and the New Testament differently Redeemed means two different things in in the two different uh, parts of the Bible. Because the Old Testament, you're going to hear it a lot more, the words redeemed, redeemer, redemption, a lot more than you will in the New Testament. Why? Because the people in the Old Testament were longing for what we have. Prophesying, believing, yearning. But also because God wanted us to have a tangible Example of what it looks like to be redeemed. And so what does he do? He gives us books upon books of the Israelites coming out of the slavery of Egypt. Also the Jewish people coming out of uh, Babylonian captivity. You see the prophets talking about that and hoping and praying and speaking that out. And so we're seeing this actual, physical, tangible move of redemption in the Old Testament that we can put our eyes on. And we can attach humanity to. As we read the Old Testament, that's what it is. It's activating this tangible, tangible, logical, rational part of our brain. It's connecting with the things that make sense to us because we can actually read the stories of the Israelites walking through uh, the wilderness and, and crossing the river and going into the promised land. And coming out of that wilderness, we can see them coming out of Egypt by millions toward the Red Sea. You see, so he shows us over and over in the Old Testament what that looks like. But it's not spoken of as much in the New Testament because it has happened. So because of Jesus Christ, we are redeemed. What the Old Testament has longed for has hoped for, has prophesied and spoken toward, has now become reality. 
It is not just a thing that's, that we can hold out here. It is a thing that becomes a part of us. An identity, a truth that dwells within us, that counsels us, that guides us, that comforts us, that speaks to us in the most uh, dysfunctional places of our life, in the most weary, exhausted places of our life, when we are crying out to the Lord, are you real? Are you really who you say you are? That's where spirit comes in and speaks truth and love. And we just know, you know, your heart just starts racing and you just know that there's got to be something more. And, and you don't maybe know what it is and you don't know much about the Bible and you don't know much about the movement or who Jesus was. But there's something in you that's just drawing you to the idea of a creator who loves you. And so that is what we see. I just want you to uh, know that in the Old Testament, I just did a little research because I love the Bible. I love to study God's word, really study God's word. In the Old Testament, you're going to see the word redeemed 50 times-ish. And in the New Testament, only about four. The word redemption, you'll see in the Old Testament about 30-ish times. In the New Testament, about 10 and the word redeemer in the Old Testament, 28 times. In the New Testament, one. One time. Because a redeemer has come. And so in the New Testament, as, as, you're, as a church, you see the, the, um, the smolderings of the church and the smell of the church rising from the, from the soil, from the ashes of all that, that the prophets have longed for. That David and Abraham and, and Moses have led out toward. And you see the church rising. And so, so we don't have to question anymore. Has our Redeemer come? He has come for us. And paid the ransom. So powerful. So powerful. Something of enormous value. Had to be exchanged so that we could go free. Here are our references in the New Testament that tells us exactly what redemption looked like and exactly who our Redeemer is. Mark 10, 45. For the Son of Man also came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Luke 1, 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed, you said visited and redeemed his people. Romans 3, 24. And we are justified... By the grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. In him we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. There is a finality to the work of Jesus. And yet we live... We live with the remnants of sin in our body. We live with the remnants of sin uh, around us. We live in that space of, of their Old Testament, doubting and wondering and questioning. Did God really say, where are you, God? Where's the manna? Where's the land of milk and honey? I want it. Where is all that you promised me and said that I am? And so... If we're true and honest with ourselves, which is really important um, for me in session one. Because I, I would, 
oh my goodness, I would be amiss to come here and just sugarcoat and placate and, and just say that everything's okay and everything's going to be okay and, and you're great and awesome. <laughs> Go your merry way. There would really be no point in, in me showing up or you showing up for that. And I'm, I, it breaks my heart that there are movements in the church that exist in those places and, and have not yet really fully seen or awakened to the beauty of conviction. The, the deep richness and favor and blessing in our life when we are true and honest about who we are and what we have been through and where we question and where we fear and where we doubt. I mean, the honesty there is, it's really breathtaking and it is where the Lord works. It is his process every time. And that is really what faith is, as I'm going to show you. It is a deepening into the awareness of who you are. That's all it is. Because the, the deeper you go into who you are, you will not be met with who you are. The deeper you go into why you think the way you do, why you behave the way you do, what, what, what is my story? What are the parts of my story that I've grown up with, that I have missed, that I've not even thought about? that I have not yet seen in the sacred places of my heart. See, God, the, the closer He draws you into those honest, true places of you, you will not be met merely with you. You will be met with the weight of His glory. You will be met with your Creator, the image of which you were woven and chosen. You will be met with Him. And as you are met with Him, you begin to see yourself the way He sees you. And that is faith. That is where faith grows. It is where it develops. It's that nitty-gritty part. And so I would be amiss to come here today and not be desperate for you to do that. I, would, I, I, want, I want to be there with you. I'm in there in the toe-crushing, knees-bleeding pain of the agony of the truth of who I am, that I am a big, fat, rebellious sinner most of the time. Most of the time when somebody hurts me or talks bad about me behind my back or betrays me or rejects me, you don't even want to know the first thing that comes to my mind. It's not pretty. It's not something you say with a microphone. See, that's where I see it. That's the honest place of me. That very first thing that I think, and it may only last a second, but it is there a hundred times a day. What can save me? As Paul cries out, I do what I don't want to do. What can save me from this body of death? Because as much as I believe I'm redeemed and as much as I say it and I go to church and I show up and I read my Bible and I pray and I do all the right things, I still, this pain comes in, this suffering, this rejection, this push at my junk and my stuff triggers something in me and there it is. A hundred times a day. What is the hope for us? And so God says, a ransom. A life for your life. One time. To 
finish the work, isn't it good? Oh, it's good. Kiss me. So good. If you knew, it changes everything. It flips our life upside down. Because now, as we fully receive God's love, fully believe it for ourselves, we are then able to give it without need of return. You want to talk about the meaty, good, Texas steak stuff of life right now. Woo! I'm up here sweating because it is so good. It is that part where we can love our man when he is unlovely. When we can love our friend when they are not loving us back. When we can show up for church and we disagree with so many things. When we can show up for our own life. When we can let ourselves off the hook and know that we are free to fail and free to disappoint. We can. We can disappoint people all day long. We are. A hundred times a day. And somebody's doing the same to us. And when we believe that God's love is for us and the work has been finished, past, present, and future, changes everything radically. That's it. The transformation occurs. But we will not feel the weight. We will not be radically shifted and changed to give love to others without return if we don't know the debt that has been paid. If we don't fully see, really see and wrestle with and reckon with the debt of our story, of our life that has been paid, we will not ever feel the payment. Does that make sense? And so, as much as this hurts, and and I don't like this at all. Conviction? Seeing my junk? Showing up for a women's conference and knowing that the reason that I showed up is not at all why I am here. That God really just sovereignly pulled me in and called me into this place because he wants to show up in a way that I haven't even had the guts to look at yet. That's for you today. That's why we, we are here. And so we have to reckon with our debt. Y'all care if I shed a layer? Okay. Oh, girls. I'm going to need to borrow that dress before I come back for session two, okay? Do a little switcheroo in the dressing room back there. I love you. Okay. I want to reckon with our debt so that we can go into session two and we're going to pull out the beautiful truths over it. But first, will you take notes about where this comes in? This has been a game changer for me. It's been a life changer for me. And it really, I mean, when I was sitting in the bed with cancer and chemo is when it came to life for me in the most agonizing pain that I would think um, to be reckoned with your life for life and death to be in front of you um, for you to be asking questions that you did not think you'd be asking at 31 years old like will I see my daughter get married who will my husband marry will he marry you should honey you really should You're a good-looking guy. Make some girl real happy. 
And, and just those, those questions alone are, mo- are moving into a space that I am ver- was very uncomfortable with. Because it was now between me and God. And, and my story, most of my life, everything had been relational. All the dysfunction, all the hurt, all the betrayal, all the pain, the wounding, the trauma. It had been between me and another person. I could mark it. I could say, dad, guy, boyfriend, whatever. You know, I could go down the list. But this illness, suffering, was between me and God. There was no person to blame I really had to reckon with who he was. Did God really say this is who he is? And so that took me to, oh man, a tender, deep, and I'm not even pretending like I'm there. Someone asked me the other day, where did you land in all of that? (laughs) Nowhere. (laughs) Where did I land? I mean, I wrote a book kind of processing through and journaling some thoughts that I felt. But land is way too final for where I'm at. And so there's some open-handed things where we get to come and we have the grace that's covered over all of that to come together and not meet up on maybe even theological things. Um, And we just get to, we get graces over all that. How we worship, how we prefer it, what we, you know what I'm saying? What our grandparents told us is church and what we see church as. What I want to ask you in just a few minutes left, and we're going to break, I I really want you to mark and and bring out your phone and write it down in the notes or write it down. My, My prayer is that you will write down something in your life. I call it a stone of debt. Um, stones are really cool to me. They're just, they're like places on our map that we mark. It's where we put a pin in our life. It's just places along our story that we've laid something of importance. And stones are important to me because stones are important to God. Whenever something really important happened in the Bible, in the Old Testament specifically, there were stones to mark it. So an altar, you would pack up the stones and make an altar and you would worship God there. Um, as the Israelites moved into the promised land, they laid, the, they laid stones. Every tribe laid a stone in the river as they crossed over. And, and every time what you're going to see, what the point of the stones is, is to remember. To remember what? To remember who God is and has been all along for you. But as we remember those stones, as we lay those stones, what comes along with remembering who God is is also a very clear uh, realization of who we are capable of being. Because if he paid for something, if he ransomed us, there was something for him to ransom. <laughs> There was a debt to be paid. And it's ugly. It's the the worst part of us. It's the first thing that we see in others. The part that we hate in ourselves. And and so this is that debt. And so what I ask, and regardless of whether I'm I'm teaching five women or 5,000 women in an arena, we do this. Pretty much every time I speak, I ask my women... Please write a stone of debt because in the second session, we're going to turn it into a stone of remembrance. Okay? It's going to change. But we have to recognize it first. Okay, so this debt, let me give you some ideas of what this could be. Oh, they're on the the screen for you. Think about what a debt is. A debt is a a poverty. It's, It's a depletion. It's a lacking. It's a void. It's something that needs to be paid. 
So how the quickest way you can acknowledge whatever that is in your life, and please understand what I'm saying. This is where I really want you to hear me and be clear because it's a both-and Christianity thing. Because the debt has been paid wholly over our life as a whole, but every day we wrestle with these little stones of debt. And they're the place in your life, whatever you feel like right now, and it can be one place, it can be uh, five or six places, it can be 20 places, but it's wherever you feel in your life that if I were to remove it and take it from you, you would feel like death. You would actually grieve, you would have an emotional response. Um, you might have a, a, a physical response of, of shaking if you're an addict and I take alcohol from you or drugs from you or you um, are an addict to nicotine and I take cigarettes from you. You're going to have a, a physical response to that being shut down in your brain. But um, So I want you to see some ideas of what that looks like. Because right now I'm just talking about these small stones we collect along the way. And think about what a stone does if you've got the river of God's love flowing through your life and it's just flowing, flowing, flowing. And what happens is we just bring in these little stones of debt around us. Little by little, they block the flow of the river of love and life in our, in our life to flow out onto others. But something else happens that most people don't recognize. We say stationary. If we have a bunch of rocks around our feet, we can't move. And so a lot of times I, when I teach, especially in the church when I'm talking to Christians, you know, we want to go immediately to the big sins and go, well, I don't have that. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not an addict. I don't lie. I don't cheat. I haven't murdered anyone. But I'm curious, as I've known in my own life, if we have a collection of little stones such as um, materialism or worry or fear that have debilitated us. And so now we show up for the good stuff, but we're frozen. We show up for church, we can, and you can, you can learn to function with the stones around you. You can learn to actually get by. You can be very successful standing still. But you are miserable. You are trapped. You are enslaved. You are in bondage to, to all of these little debts. And what happens is those debts, they represent something that we think needs to be paid. Those stones represent a debt in our life of something that we think needs to be paid, not only of ourselves. So a lot of times this looks like just letting ourselves off the hook because we think we need to earn and hustle and show up and prove to everybody that we're worth loving. But mostly what these stones look like is saying that you owe me something to get to me. Mostly as women, what I see and what I see in myself, sister, so you just know you know we're not alone in this, we're together, is that I will put these debts up, these stones up that they have hurt me real bad. And if they want full access to the flow of my love and my resources and my energy, they've got to pay that debt first. And we do it in, we do it in so many little different ways, we don't even realize it. It's in all the passive-aggressive things that we say, all of our tones like, yeah, oh my goodness, I saw that you were at Rachel's party. 
Y'all look like y'all were having so much fun. What a blessing for you to go and be at Rachel's party. I mean, she totally didn't invite me, but I'm fine. I mean, it's such a blessing. Come on now. We can placate. We can use religious words to make it sound real good. Y'all, we really need to pray. We need to pray for Stephanie. She is just going through a really bad time. She's just not trusting the Lord. She's just, she's cheated on her husband. It's a mess, a mess. We need to pray for Stephanie. Those are all coming from a place of sin and debt in our life. Not for the love of the person. And so it's all these little tiny things. It's going out and putting something on a credit card. Because we don't have the money, but we really want that, so we get it. Y'all, I'm all up in my business right now. Just know that. All up in here. So it's in things like our reputation. If I really tell someone how I feel, if I really tell someone that I am depressed, like really depressed, like need meds and a therapist depressed, what will happen? If I really show up somewhere at a Bible study or if I press into a group at church and really uh, let them into all the intimate things and they reject me, yeah, I don't think so. So we're already going through these things that haven't even happened. We're already counting ourselves out of intimacy and the church and it haven't happened yet. No one's rejected you yet. And you're already saying, oh, they're going to, no, no, if I really tell them. Furthermore, it doesn't matter if they do, hallelujah. Goodness. Things like our stuff. It can be in the depths of our stuff. If I don't have the cool toys, no one's going to play with me. If I don't have the cool clothes and the cool car and show up at the cool places, then I won't be long. I won't be a part of the really fun things. It can be in our behaviors. These habitual things, these ways of coping, our addictions, all the places that we earn our love. These are debts. This is something that we feel we need to pay to get love or someone else needs to pay to get our love. You see what I'm saying? This can be in our working. This can be in our striving. This can be in all the labels that you put on your life like I have. I mean, my friends know me as the show-upper. I show up, I get it done, move out of my way. This is going to be accomplished by the end of this day. Just watch me. I walk into my friends that are just like that. Oh my goodness. They just don't see it. They got clothes everywhere. And I walk into their bedroom and it's just like, there's clothes and there's stuff and there's a lampshade over there. And there, I, I mean, there's dog food. I'm like, what is happening? Let's get this done right. They didn't even ask me for my help, but I'm in there going, oh, look, all we need to do is this right here. We're just going to hang this up. We're going to take this over to, you know, they're like, I didn't even ask you for your help. I actually like it like this. Thank you very much. And so I can be that label all day long for somebody. That's my behaviors. Your beliefs. Oh, here's a big one. Here's a stone that we place that's really, really tricky. It looks really, really pretty. It's like the white stone. That's like you can look at and go, ooh, look, look everyone at this white stone. It's shiny and smooth. Look how it shines in the sun. You know what it's saying to you in the shine? It's saying, I'm right and you're wrong. That's what it's saying. That's my belief, my ideals. 
I grew up in this. My grandmother is not wrong. Have you met my grandmother? She said this, so it is true of me, you, and everybody. And it's those closed, those fisted, white-knuckled grips we have on what we think of you and you and you and she over there and him over there and, and our pastor and our boss. It's what we think we know. It's the assumptions that are in play. Not necessarily what is true. And so to remove that stone, you know what happens to let go of that pretty white, shiny stone? Means that we have to say that we could be wrong. (laughs) That's what it feels like. It feels like death. It feels like death to be wrong. I don't want to be wrong. I want to be right about her so that I'm justified in how I treat her. But to let go of that belief. And then, of course, in our relationships. We can find this all over our relationships. Mostly, I see it with with women, especially in expectation. The stone of debt shows up wherever you are expecting someone to pretty much do anything. When you are expecting someone to love you fully, unconditionally, to love you like you want to be loved, And when we put that very heavy, heavy weight, that stone on someone else, it will not be returned. I mean, it it, it is not a human thing. It's not a mortal thing for them to love you like that. They're they're unable to. They're incapable of it. And you and you to them. And so do you see, do you see all these things that are just these stones that are small, tiny, shiny, pretty, whatever? That we haven't even looked at. And they're starting to come to the surface. And the more we see it, the more we go, whoa, there's a lot of debts. I got a lot of junk in my life that I need to see and I need to deal with and I need to uproot. And someone, someone's got to pay this. Because I haven't been able to successfully do it. He hasn't been able to successfully do it. They're still here. I can't seem to move. So what do we do? 